Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Richard Calderon, a modern work customer success manager at Microsoft on the topic of customer success and his focus on modern work and the collaboration space. Welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast. And my guest today is Richard. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. It's, I'm trying to think of the, when was the last time that, I, that we saw each other? Has it been it, like two it, and a half years? No, it might have been in Branson last year. Oh, that's right. Yep. Branson happened. Yep. That's yep. right. And coming yeah. up again, that event. So, folks that don't know who you are, where you are, what you do, why don't you give us a lowdown? Sure. So happy to be on. My name is Richard Calderon, and I am a modern work customer success manager at Microsoft. Um, have been working in the Microsoft-related fields for 20-plus years now at this point, wow. mostly on the consulting side. So worked uh, in the partner ecosystem for many, many years. Was at Microsoft formerly for about four years, starting in 2014, and then went back to work for a couple of different partners um, over the course of the pandemic time frame and saw lots of change and lots of uh, priority shift as we all did. And then recently rejoined Microsoft uh, about four months ago, joining the customer success team um, in this role as a modern work customer success manager. And I live in Austin, Texas and uh, support the South region enterprise customers. I know there's, we've seen a lot of boomerangs, uh, you know, I, other companies as well, but especially with, with Microsoft, people that have gone and ventured out and gone to some direct competitors and in, in back in there. But, but I mean, you've been in this space for a long time, been involved with collaboration technology for a long time. Yeah. But what is the role of the customer success manager? Because, and, and part of it, and since you've been in the ecosystem, you're also aware that at one point in time, Microsoft kind of cleared out their employees mm -hmm. in that space, yeah. which all of us in the community said, that's a huge mistake. And, and I know that there's a lot of reasons for that, for departments and the changing priorities of those leaders there that, in my perspective, they weren't thinking from a what's best for Microsoft overall mindset. They were just thinking about clearing out the roles that didn't make sense for their organization anymore. Sure. But kind of what is the role and what's Microsoft doing around that space? Yeah, so, um, I mean, interestingly enough, the customer success manager role which has been around for, I think, around four plus years now at this point, mm -hmm. when Microsoft officially formed the Customer Success Unit, um, has really, it's evolved annually at this point. So I would say it, it'd be hard pressed to say exactly what the role is, but I can say that initially, at the very least, it was really kind of centered around this idea that historically, Microsoft is, as you know, we all know, having worked with Microsoft for decades now, was really focused on creating products and tools and applications and then getting those out into the market so that companies could start to leverage them and benefit from them and so on and so forth. Strategically, I think there came to a certain point with obviously all the cloud services that Microsoft and any other cloud service provider realized that just selling and licensing the services to customers as an end was not really sufficient to really drive value. 
or to be able to achieve Microsoft's business objectives as well. Really, at the end of the day, just kind of putting it out there and saying, here you go, was not really going to going to be the end of it. So what they concluded is that they really needed a focused set of resources or people who could go to the to the end goal, essentially, which is that um, once a customer has services available to them, obviously, they then have to be able to deploy and enable those services. But then even past that, how do you really get them to realize true business value and actually be able to achieve outcomes and so forth? And transform digitally with these different types of services. So at the end of the day, the customer success manager and, and as part of the customer success unit at large is really to try to help customers realize the full benefit and value that they have and accelerate that time to value for Microsoft cloud technologies. And in my case for modern work, it's mostly centered around Microsoft 365 and obviously Microsoft Teams at the center mm -hmm. of that mm -hmm. with some connections to all power platform capabilities because there's a lot of related stories when it comes to all that. Uh, but that's effectively what the role is today. It, as I mentioned before, it's it kind of evolved from its initial conception, more focused around adoption and change management, because mm -hmm. again, that was, that was something in the big picture that um, Microsoft realizes was a gap. Was lacking. Well, in, and yeah. I, I would tell people that aren't familiar with that. It, it, you know, Microsoft used to focus so much on those, the selling of the enterprise agreement. And I think yeah. the wake up that happened, and this is like six, seven years ago when Microsoft started to wake up to this and realizing these large enterprises were not renewing at the same mm -hmm. levels because they, they were saying, we're, we're not seeing the adoption. We're not seeing the value out of these. And Microsoft said, you know, uh, having cleared a lot of those roles and let go a number of people that were in these mm -hmm. customer success type roles, um, that uh, they were critical in helping people actually adopt and use the technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, I think we've all heard some of these key words that have been used change over the past many years now, in the sense that, again, historically, it was really centered around at least from Microsoft's vantage point, were we able to actually sell them licenses to software or services in the cloud? And then it moved beyond that to deployment. Like, okay, well now we gotta make sure that they've in fact deployed those right. services in some way. And then it moved beyond deployment to consumption. And consumption was sort of like the, the you know word, the keyword that was used all over the place. We gotta drive consumption, consumption, consumption. And then if you will, that sort of softened into something more centered around adoption. And how do we get people to adopt these tools and technologies, which you could kind of loosely define as habitual use of them in some way right. in, in the context of their daily work. And then now really more so than just adoption because adoption as a means to an end in and of itself there is no value in something if you habitually use it, but you're not really benefiting from it in some way. So at the end of the day, the keyword there, I think it really is value. So trying to help customers mm -hmm. realize that there is value in leveraging these different technologies for whatever it is they're trying to accomplish essentially, but you know, ultimately achieving some kind of a business outcome, whether it's from the organizational perspective or even just from an individual productivity perspective. Um, helping people see the value of these Microsoft technologies is the end game. So all the things leading up to that um, are obviously critical, but in the end of the day, that's really what the customer success team is focused on, trying to you drive know, value. It's interesting to see that that shift because I completely agree with it. And I, and I value, I always say, I, I define that as 
adoption versus engagement. You have somebody that's adopt, they're using it structurally. This is where I put files. Here's where we have our meetings, but engaged is where they're really leveraging that to drive that business value. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is something which I think a lot of us, again, that have been in this space a long time, and I'm sure you agree with this, is that we intuitively understood the difficulty has always been, and for a lot of customers to move past what are the quantitative measurements of success and how to put numbers around the qualitative benefits. Like we've always inherently understood that if we collaborate more, if we're working more closely together, that the volume of work that we do increases, the quality of the work that we do increases. So we output more and the quality of the output increases by, by doing that. Again, we intuitively understood that, but businesses need to have measurements around those things. What, what do I, if we're not, you know, we're not onboarded, like it, 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 this is a, almost, I've had this conversation with some partners and with customers around, like the fast track program is a great example. And so the measurements in place of, you know, are we really adopting and how do we know that our people are using it? And, and so you have partners, you have Microsoft now that are providing templates and providing guidance. And even, you know, here are some samples of internal emails that you can use to mm -hmm. promote people to go and do these things, challenges that you can do, group activities to get people to become more familiar with a bunch of these, these capabilities. Yeah. And, and so it's, uh, you know, again, for having been in the space for a long time, I'm glad to see that the industry is catching up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, you know, one, one thought that you made me think of just now when it comes to, you know, take obviously Microsoft Teams as a great example, because that's the focus of our role primarily. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to realizing value from the countless capabilities now that are really inside of Teams, but let's just talk about the table stakes stuff. So like being able to use Teams for chatting one-on-one -on -one with another individual it might seem valuable all and well and good to an organization to say, we're going to go with teams. We own this as part of our agreement. Now we're going to deploy and enable this and so forth. But if I'm the only person using teams and I try to chat at all these various people amongst the company and no one is responding back to me because they would prefer to do it some other way. They're like, no, I'm just going to stick with email or we've had some of these other legacy tools in place before where I have the ability to communicate. So I'm just going to ignore your chat and I'm going to respond to you some other way. Then it inherently becomes val no value. There's no value to me in that case of using that in, in this case. So, so there's a, there's a bigger kind of story around this, I think, when it comes to helping organizations shift the way that they think about using tools and technologies to ultimately be able to derive value. Because again, there's, there's layers to it, individual value, team value, you know, all the way to the organization wide. And, and again, we've, we've seen numerous cases where um, we think something is extremely valuable and we've tried our best to express it in as many ways as we can and demonstrate that. But at the end of the day, the culture of the company is going to be critical to ultimately adopting and deriving the value. So there's, there's lots of, of work to be done in that when it comes to our team. You know, there's uh, it's funny to bring that up too. Is like I just uh, came back from London. I was uh, speaking at the Commsverse event uh, mm. at uh, 
Mercedes Benz world. So in Woking and the UK, so outside of London. Yeah. Um, great facility, by the way. But anyway, one of my sessions was on understanding the culture, the team culture of collaboration. And some of the guidance that I provided was exactly to your point is that, look, this is an iterative process. I can be all gung ho and I can catch the big picture of this, but if nobody else on my team is, I'm not going to be effective in doing those things. And so um, there, there are sometimes you have to, to understand what the culture is. And when I mean the culture, there's a bunch of different ways you can interpret that. But I use the example of, look, there are some organizations that are very email centric. There's nothing wrong with being email centric. There are plenty of, uh, well, like we've all seen the, uh, the social posts around this, like, hey, that really long email could have been a quick five minute Teams chat. We did, did we need to do it that way? Of course, I've seen it the other way. Did I, that Teams meeting I was in could have been a quick five minute email to me or something. <laughs> right. Um, so, which kind of speaks to that, that truth of that, hey, look, there's no one way to do all things. But there might be, you know, culturally, your organization might be very email centric. And so the types of activities and the ways to move people over to, to Microsoft Teams and to other ways of doing things, you know, you might create a strategy based on that. Others that are very uh, uh, non-communicative, uh, they are, you know, maybe just have the structure and we've got our portal and all the templates and things that we need there. So getting them to talk more, to meet more, to chat more, to, to, to get a lot of this, this content, which might be hidden within folders and within structure out into more of a place where it's the work out loud model where we can all see and collaborate and work together. That might be, you know, the cultural change, which you need to go and do. Mm -hmm. And so, but it all begins with, uh, really kind of assessing where, where are we as an organization? Where are some immediate areas where we can improve and where do we need to put a long-term plan in place? I don't know how you approach that in your role. Now, when you walk in or working with a new customer, do you have kind of a model for assessing where they are? Like, what are your kind of first steps? Yeah. So again, as I mentioned, still new to roll, if you will, about mm -hmm. four months in. So still getting my feet on the ground around some of these processes internally. But, and of course, it's the beginning of Microsoft's new fiscal year. So lots of things are going to change yet again, as they always do. Right. And there, people are going to disappear for a month on vacation. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but what I can say, at least from what I've observed or participated in so far, and what I would expect to more than likely be similar moving into this next part of the early part of the year, is um, it's a it's a joint effort between people in my role and other roles within the customer success team, as well as collaborating with account team members, and then also what we refer to as the specialist team unit. So all of these field roles combined, the ones that are customer facing, um, have sort of a shared responsibility, if you will, of working together to share information in all contexts about where the customer is, um, kind of in their journey of transformation, if you will, what their priorities are, what different compelling events and activities are occurring. And then based on the information we have, putting together um, at least somewhat of a plan that could be a multi-year plan, if you would. Um, obviously, the, the shorter time frame is going to be a bit more focused and the further out it gets, it's a little grayer and so forth. But 
um, something to try to help steer everyone and ideally guide the customer with a shared understanding as to how we're going to help try to leverage, obviously, Microsoft technologies to help them achieve the things that they're trying to accomplish. And there is no silver bullet to that by any means. It's definitely challenging, depends on numerous factors, the size of the customer, who to whom you have access at the customer. Um, because again, every business around the, the world is, is an entity in and of themselves. They've got their own priorities. They're busy. They, you know, they have other vendors that are coming at them constantly, you know, uh, vying for just a moment of their time and attention to talk about things. And so Microsoft is no exception to that. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a, a kind of an ongoing process there to come up with what that plan looks like. You know, do you guys ever leverage as part of your practice? And again, maybe uh, you're you're too new to see whether people are using it. But uh, you're the com really community driven the maturity model uh, mm -hmm. as a as a starting point for that. Have you has that been discussed, or is that part of the tools that uh, organizations I, use? I, I don't know a whole lot, quite frankly, about that. I mean, I, I've I've seen and heard of some of the usage of maturity models to a certain extent in this case. Um, and, you know, Microsoft has sort of our own flavor of the way that we do these assessing to determine uh, kind of a general maturity of an organization. You know, you could obviously use some of the basics, like are they fully on-prem still, or are they somewhat in the right. cloud, or are yeah. they all the way in the cloud? And then if they are, are they just starting off or have they been in it for, you know, some length of time? where end users are now um, have the digital skill, if you will, of leveraging cloud technologies to be ready for what the next level of maturity might be, you know, for example, like citizen development and things of that nature. And right. I know I have seen those kinds of models in place before, but <clears throat> haven't really had an opportunity to be able to put them in place myself. You know, my, my philosophy with this, uh, I'll come back to that in a second, but uh, you know, back in when I was uh, managing, it was in more in the project management world and I had, you know, teams and did, you know, client deployments and, and kind of managed that. And I would, and I paid for a number of people to go through and get their PMP certifications. Mm -hmm. So with the project management Institute and that side of it, and my guidance for them coming back out of that, because if you've ever known somebody that's gone through that, they come back out of that and they're hardcore going to go and drive this. And I, my guidance was always, I never want you to see, I never want you to attempt to deploy hundred percent of that methodology that you've learned. You sure. need to pick and choose the pieces that make sense for the project, for the client, for whatever that is. Uh, you've learned, uh, it's like martial arts. You've learned a hundred ways to kill people. You only need to use one. <laughs> right. Um, right. But the, I like the idea of the maturity Michael model. If you're, people aren't familiar with it, it's um, if you go and do a search for Microsoft 365 maturity model, You'll find it out on docs.microsoft.com, um, the resources that are out there. And there's a lot, kind of as you indicated, it go in a number of different directions based on the profile of your company or your customer that you're working with. But what I like about it is that it's a it's a methodology or it's not a methodology. It's, it's a framework mm -hmm. for helping you assess. And if you don't know like, well, where do I go from here? It can give you ideas to go and do that. Does it replace the thinking that you must do uh, to, to fit your company in there to, to do right. the assessment, but at least it gives you a place to begin. I wish more people would leverage tools like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree entirely. And again, I think, you know, at least in my experience on a customer by customer basis, it really often just depends on if you can apply a maturity model, if they're at a place in time to be ready to think about that right. kind of stuff. Because, you know, I equate it to just thinking about ourselves in our own personal life, you know, I might have, and my wife and I might have aspirations to do some full remodels of various rooms of our home, and we're going to remodel the kitchen, and we're going to do these various things. But, you know, if we've just got some other stuff that's broken right now that just needs to get fixed, I mean, that's right. that's the priority. Well, at the moment, well that's you know? what I like about that, too, is because I think that's a smart way to use a tool. And, I, and I'm not just telling people everybody must go use that one tool, but using it yeah. as as an example, you can go focus on one workload, one area to say sure. right now are uh, the priority is that we've just deployed teams. We're trying to figure out like the basics of that. Go look at that specific workload and examples from that. It may give you some ideas. And the, the other reality is we never always fit hundred percent in our organization across any one level. We're not at mm -hmm a level three in everything across the board, or even in one workload, we might have teams that are operating at level one, the worst, and some that are up at five and doing fantastic. Um, it, the reality is in our organization, we're going to be a blend of those things. What it is, is a place where there's great content that's driven largely by Sorry, that's why I'm just so pushing on this is because it's community driven content. Mm -hmm. It's the it's hundreds of people's input and their experiences and what they've seen with clients and within their own companies of real world experiences that have helped shape that. And so it's just a great resource that everybody should have bookmarked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess agree. my book report is done on the maturity model. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, that, that's what I would you know definitely start with. Well, I mean, what what are some of the the, the trends now that you're seeing? I mean, Teams is, I think it's it is the fastest growing product in Microsoft's history. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so it replaced. So I think SharePoint replaced Exchange or Outlook, and then Teams displaced SharePoint. Uh, but so what are some of the, the patterns that you're seeing? Like where, where do organizations struggle? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, maybe stating the obvious. So Microsoft Teams being um, an extremely robust platform of capabilities that allow really individuals and then teams and organizations at large to be able to accomplish a lot of things throughout their business day in the context of one surface or interface. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue to say that, you know, Outlook and Teams are probably for, for you know, most Microsoft companies. Um, the two applications that are up and running, maybe on monitor A and monitor B all day, every day, for the most right. part, for, for desk workers, that is. And then of course, any of the other applications that they might have a need to, based on their various role and function. And so when you think about, um, what happened during the course of the pandemic, clearly, again, there was a rush and a need for um, organizations to quickly figure out how are we going to allow people to be able to continue to do work and communicate and share information and collaborate. And Teams became a very obvious choice for lots and lots of organizations around the planet that likely already had access to the use of Teams, but maybe just hadn't quite decided when or didn't have the urgency to kind of uh, get moving on getting that enabled and deployed and then kind of rushed to get that out there. 
at the very least so that they could use virtual online meetings like uh, Teams mm -hmm. meetings, obviously. Um, but then also considering the idea of being able to have these workspaces with teams, channels, and et cetera, et cetera, where people could share and even have discussions and so forth. And one of the biggest challenges that occurred as a result of that is just a, you know, again, uh, with this rushed implementation, not any really forethought into how would this be managed? How would it be governed? How would we help provide guidance? Um, what would we do in terms of helping to kind of skill people up on the use of uh, these teams workspaces? I think meetings was maybe a little bit more intuitive for the most part, because again, people, especially if they had video conferencing software of some sorts in the past, had a familiarity with, I join a meeting and I can turn my video on or off or my mic on and off um, with some nuances, but getting into team collaboration in the context of teams, I think that threw a lot of people for a loop. Um, because arguably it's not super, super intuitive, especially if you, let's say you have the ability in your organization to create your own team, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, again, is the default uh, enablement on the Microsoft side. To allow you people to do whatever, just not get create away. their own team. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Which is what the intent is right or wrong. The intent is to just help people to be able to quickly create these collaboration spaces. Well, that, that was the day what was the intention. It was more of like the Yammer model, which was mm -hmm. the, you know, not so structured, keep it flat and yeah. let people go and collaborate. And of course, then you have the complaints of sprawl and you have exactly inconsistency in usage of the tools and, you know, all that, that kind of stuff, which is why you have yeah. so many, you know, provisioning options that more organizations that are trying to balance that getting out of the way and letting people get their work done, mm -hmm. but doing it in a more structured way. And so, uh, you know, it could be that like my company has a process that when we go in and provision for approval and make sure that it's kind of justified, that it makes sense and internal, external, th those kinds of steps. Other companies go so far as that every time they might have templates for different kinds of teams that can be created something that is product related something that is project related something that is initiative related that might come with certain tabs certain tools and apps and bots already enabled as part of that template yeah and so yeah that that's something which is new to a lot of organizations yeah and that you know being able to get started without having to have sort of a blank canvas is a huge help for lots of business and end users, I should say, because again, there's, there's nothing more daunting than saying, oh, well, I've, I've went through one little training session or I was told that I can create this thing called a team and now I've got this team with one channel called general and then everything else is blank. And what do I do at this point now? That, that can be uh, intimidating or overwhelming to say the least, but but to kind of get back to one of your questions around sort of what some of the problems are, mm -hmm. I feel like that rush to enable these, these virtual remote collaborative tools like Microsoft Teams compounded more problems, basically. It was trying to address a problem or a series of problems, and it ended up creating more problems like you just mentioned in this case. From an IT perspective, the sprawl and the lack of governance and even the legal considerations around should data be stored out here, or is it sensitive data, or who has access to this information and so forth, now that it's in these various online cloud services, 
um, were major, major problems that got created that IT teams had to start figuring out how do I get their arms wrapped around that. Mm-hmm. And then from the business user perspective, who ultimately was supposed to be gaining value out of this, again, created a number of other problems. At the very least, potential frustration of just where do I go? Like now I belong to 25 teams. I didn't ask to participate in these. I just got added to 20 of them. And now I need to know, do I navigate between these various teams or where is this information stored or do I need to be a member of this team or not? And, you know, at a certain point, it it definitely gets to a level of like, okay, I'm just throwing my hands up in the air and saying, I'm just not going to bother using this now because I can't just get things done essentially, which I feel like, again, at the end of the day, when I speak to business users, you know, the theme, one of the major themes, I guess I should say, behind what they're trying to talk about all the time is that they're just trying to benefit from the technology and the tools in some way to ultimately get their job done. They're, most business users aren't like you know, technophiles where they just love it all, and they're like, I love the technology, and I just can't wait to put my hands Embrace on it. Embrace the chaos. Some, some, that's right. Yeah. Some, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, some, some do. You know, some, some really enjoy all that, and that's great. But others are just like, you know, what's the kind of almost minimum amount of things I need to know and understand and use each day? to be able to ultimately get all the things I'm trying to get done as effectively as possible. And in the context of where I'm not going insane, trying to keep track of all this, you know, your own personal well-being throughout the day, your, you know, how you're feeling, so to speak, around your work and whether you're being productive or whether you're getting bogged down matters. And so um, these are all the things, again, that, that Microsoft has paid a lot of attention to over the course of the pandemic. And is really, really trying to address front and center now, um, just kind of, I guess, pivoting this conversation from collaboration over to that employee experience side of things is yeah. I'm sure a lot, everyone's heard of now that, that we have a kind of a whole new branded suite of services and applications on the platform that we refer to as Microsoft Viva. And that's really, again, what the target of that is, is talking about and really focusing on the experience of the individual employee and trying to help them, again, leverage the tools that they have available to them, plus new tools that we're making available to help them have the best work experience throughout their day so that they can do the best work that they possibly can effectively. And so there's there's lots and lots of research and thought that goes into how those tools are being implemented as well too. And, right. and so these are the kinds of things that we're, we're focusing on trying to help address with customers. You know, and there's a, speaking of that, a lot of that research, um, I, I think it's not getting as many props uh, lately as, as needed, but the, uh, if you are interested in some of the thinking that went behind the creation, the launch of Viva and a lot of the different solutions where Microsoft is going, even with these other more mainstream applications, I mean, Teams and SharePoint and OneDrive, things like that, go check out the Work Lab blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, because that's where there was kind of hand in hand some of these announcements, and then Jared Spataro would go and do a blog post and share the research, the data, the science behind. Here's why we're moving forward this uh, around this this side of things, and uh, it, so it's fascinating for those that are interested in the culture of collaboration and the research behind it. You need to bookmark the Work Lab blog post or blog site. Yeah, so. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Work lab. You see it mentioned yeah. once in a while, but uh, but yeah, you can find it again. There's the I always point people to Work Lab uh, and to the Microsoft 365 blog itself mm-hmm. for other announcements. But between the two, you're going to get a lot of that 
richer data and backstory behind a lot of the product announcements that you're seeing. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that, um, again, having been in the space for a long time now, before I started at Microsoft uh, many years ago, you know, often wondered to myself, um, as a consumer and a user of Microsoft products, and then obviously as a, a services consultant who was helping to deliver these services to customers, I often wondered many times, you know, is Microsoft really, are they listening to customers and are they trying to figure out what they need or are they just trying to create stuff for the sake of creating it and then sort of putting it out there and seeing if it, if there's a home for it or if there's a use for it and so forth. Well, and I feel like sometimes, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, sure, sure. But I, I, I think, you know, now more so than ever, really, again, uh, many years worth now, for sure, throughout the pandemic, Microsoft has really pivoted on trying to understand, do a ton of listening and really doing that research and then taking that research and driving it back into the development and the, the creation of the products and services the way they are. So, so that ideally in best case, then once they're being delivered to organizations and customers, they're already positioned to deliver the value that they've essentially been asking the questions of all this time. So, you know, I think that that has been a huge, huge pivotal change. Well, the project, I mean, there was a, uh, the, the, again, uh, you know, years back, I've, I've lost all sense of time uh, due to the pandemic, but uh, the, it was a few years back where Microsoft made a shift. Here's my perspective on the, the shift that happened around the product teams, where they went and they let go a lot of the testing organization. Hmm. They got rid of, uh, uh, um, you know, SDETs or, you know, however you pronounce the acronym. Um, but the, on the, the, the testers that were really looking, yes, they were doing as part of the, the, the pre-release leading up to the product, but it was more of a, we think this is what people want. We'll go and do that. And then we'll release it. We'll dog food it. And then we have testers going through and refining it and clean, help clean up. But it was more of an, of a post release uh, uh, strategy. Mm -hmm. The shift that happened was the, the inclusion of data scientists, uh, data analysts around every product, looking at the, the, the usage patterns, um, the, the metrics around features, around how many clicks on this, what are people actually doing, what does it mean, what are you intending to do, more focus groups, more data science that are around that, and it was more uh, you know, out in front of the release of, is this even the right thing for us to go and focus on? Is this the right, driving the right behavior? Are we getting, are we Microsoft getting the right volume, the right level interest, the, 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 the right results out of the time that we're spending on it? Not just, you know, uh, pushing yet another product out there, but being thoughtful around, this is why we're doing this Here's where it fits. Here's what we expect to see. How close were we to our assumptions? We start looking at the real data around that. It's just, it's a different way. It's a data-driven product development. Um, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I say, you know, for customers that have feedback, that have complaints of something, and I would always ask, have you gone in and provided that feedback to Microsoft through official channels, out on official boards, um, you know, are, are, are you making it known? He's like, well, no. I said, well, you're complaining about something or you have this great advice. If you never put it out there, how can Microsoft learn? Sure. And so that is something 
I've heard from people around the world is that they are amazed at how closely Microsoft is listening to feedback and input from customers and community around the world and how quickly they go in and react. And obviously there's, there are some times where, Hey, this feedback and they're like, yeah, we're well aware of it. It's already been prioritized. It's on the list. And that's where you can go in there and you can follow along on features and products uh, on the roadmap and see where things are and, and, and follow specific conversations and threads as part of that. And yeah. other times it might be entirely new. And they are pulling customers, pulling MVPs and other experts aside and saying, what is this thing? Help, help me understand the scenarios. Help me understand the, the, the impacts to your business of these issues that you're experiencing. It's fantastic yeah. to see that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as a matter of fact, that is also, that's a big component of what our team is also charged with doing is helping to be the voice of the customer and to advocate back towards the engineering teams and, you know, to, to take what ideally they've already provided feedback for through any of the number of channels that you mentioned um, and just reinforce with them that this is what we're seeing and this is what the customer is experiencing. And this is why um, maybe that particular issue is a blocker to their being able to fully embrace or transform and going down a different direction. That's, that's the kind of data exactly right. What Microsoft would love to hear from customers and say like, Hey, we'd love to go and do this. Here are our business blockers. Here are the reports that are missing. Here's the Mm -hmm. features that our competitor, your competitor has that and it's critical to our business and why that kind of feedback is so important. Absolutely. So, you know, again, I think I think Microsoft has made leaps and bounds in moving that direction. And, you know, again, it's still it's a huge company. And obviously, there's lots of different things being developed and created all the time and different priorities and so forth. But I think taking what customers uh, are saying, what they're needing, what they're asking for, and then coming at it from that perspective of trying to create from uh, from that angle is, again, that's something that is just built into the the culture of the company now yeah well it's, it's been really uh you know enlightening to hear more about the role so kind of what's uh what are your other passions and kind of wrap up what what, what are the, you excited about um personally not just because that's what you're measured on for your role because <laughs> <laughs> we're we're technologists at heart there's certain yeah. things that we just think are really exciting and cool but you know so what are yeah. kind of your passions right now yeah, I mean, you know, coming back to Microsoft was a good opportunity for me to to rethink, um, you know, what potentially might be this sort of next stage of my own career personally. And and obviously being at Microsoft, you have an opportunity to look at all kinds of different things that we're doing. Um, you know, you and I have known each other in the SharePoint space for a long time now, More uh, than where, I, where, yep. where we hung our hat for many, many years. And then, you know, that became one of the core kind of content services capabilities in this broader Office 365 and Microsoft 365 set of services now. But, you know, when you look at the broader, say, Microsoft clouds and you talk about Dynamics 365 and Power Platform and Azure and so forth, um, I think what's really interesting to me right now, and I've just, I've been spending time when I can listening and, and participating in some of the chat discussions internally in the communities is, things centered around metaverse and metaverse technologies and kind of where that idea of a, you know, web three 
um, you know, kind of thinking about how initial web was really just sort of like the internet being something where it's available and people can consume content and then web 2.0 really being sort of when social became a thing and people could interact and create their own content on social. And now with this whole notion of web three being where now there's these ideas of being able to have these immersive, persistent worlds, virtual environments, if you will, where people can kind of go in and out and and engage in all kinds of things, whether it's social activities or you know uh, commerce and um, obviously industrial uses as well. I think that's just super, super interesting to me. Yeah. And Microsoft is obviously going to be a big player in that as well. Um, it's obviously very much still kind of an emerging space. So nothing really kind of set in stone and no kind of definitive directive of that. Other than it is to say that I know that Microsoft, at least from what I read, Microsoft's position on the metaverse is that there, there is unlikely to be one metaverse anytime in the near future. Like today, we think of the internet. They're unlikely to be the metaverse anytime soon. More than likely, there will be well, many metaverses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, is that it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But with, you know, with, with many metaverses, Obviously, there's going to be challenges of, you know, okay, it's a well, multiverse, how do I... Richard. Yeah, a multiverse, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, how would I be able to take my own uh, virtual avatar, if you will, and be able to go in and out of these different metaverses? And is there a standard? And can I take my stuff with me? And can I spend my money also in these places? And so lots of challenges to kind of figure out there. But, you know, to answer your question, that's what excites me. I think it's super yeah. interesting. You know, whether it's in our lifetime, for sure, I, I think it will be. But for sure in our kids' lifetimes, because that's what they know today. You know, yeah. I watch my own kids just just go crazy, you know, playing Minecraft and and you know, Roblox and kind of coming up with these different ideas of how to build things. And when I watch them, I feel like I'm just I'm witnessing the future of how work and life is going to be, because those are experiences that they're gonna just expect to be able to interact with as they get, you know, to the age where they're entering the workforce. So I, I think that's super interesting, and that's that's something that I would like to also uh, spend as much time as I can, while obviously effectively delivering in my current role, trying to figure out if there's a way to be able to um, get further into that that space. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that there, I, you're right. I mean, there's so much there, and I know there's a lot of naysayers on like the pure VR side of things. Mm. There are so many augmented reality, AR you know, opportunities, things that are out there today. I mean, Microsoft yeah. has yep. in the industrial manufacturing, mm -hmm. the IOT world, you know, uh, you know, there's yep. solutions that are out there. Right. There's so many, uh, in fact, just had this, uh, we were talking about this at dinner last week at this event, like the idea of having, um, you know, a lighter weight headset or glasses, like the Google glass type device. Mm -hmm that if I'm walking down the street, if I put in like my map, instead of looking down at my phone, it lights up the path in front of me through yeah. the glass. So it's an augmented reality layered on yep. top of the real world. Or if I, if I clip coupons and I go to the mall, the, you know, the system knows which coupons that I have digitally and will direct me to the stores where they're valid. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, color code them, blinking, whatever it is. Hey, yeah. you need to visit that. You've got that coupon for half off, whatever. Um, there's a lot of cool things. I love in the Microsoft solution that's out there now, which is, I can't remember the name of the product. But for example, if I'm in a, uh, you know, industrial plant and I'm monitoring mm -hmm. systems, I could have these IoT, these Internet of Thing devices mm -hmm. spread out monitoring certain areas. Yeah. 
And then I could visually walk over to the area and again, with the headset, look at it and it would digitally imprint on, hey, here's where we're seeing a pressure leak or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or some other, you know, to the higher temperature than normal to go and inspect that area. The scenario I love the most for AR is be like your car breaks down. I'm not a mechanic. I, I, I drive an Audi. I don't know how to work on my car anymore. Uh, but I could lift up the hood and I could have a mechanic on a call looking through my eyes at my engine and then yeah. be able to highlight and say, I see it there and digitally highlight it so that I can see it in real time. And like, oh, that hose came off or... Or mm -hmm. yes, that broke. I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I think there's so many powerful scenarios. And the one thing I would say about the the, the virtual reality side of that, again, to the naysayers that are out there, um, it, it, we look at like the the avatars and things. And some of us, and I agree, some of it's a bit corny looking today. Why does nobody have legs in this virtual world? Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's the 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 brain is amazing at how quickly it adjusts, how mm -hmm. powerful it is, the, the interactive side of that. I'm very much a, I'm a managed by walking around kind of guy. I love the events and the personal interactions, mm -hmm. but for those that can't be there to have that, like, I, I can't wait for us to have like the Jedi council experience yeah. There's of 10 people. There's seven of us that are here physically and three that are there virtually exactly. we can interact in a way that all of us are able to participate. Uh, you know, that we're rapidly approaching that reality. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent agree. It all sounds very science fiction like in many ways, but yeah, it's, it's around the corner, quite frankly. And again, you know, whether or not people are actually take to it, uh, when they have an opportunity to be able to leverage it or not, again, kind of comes back potentially to sort of a cultural conversation type thing or just an individual user preference. But the fact that we'll be able to leverage those for that purpose, um, like what you just described, being able to meet together where we feel like we're all together and therefore have um, more of that kind of personal relationship and collaboration together, I just think it's super cool. So I'm very excited about that stuff too. It's, it's more tools in the toolbox. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Richard, really appreciate you uh, joining the Cloud Talk podcast today. And uh, we'll definitely need to keep in touch. I hope to see you sooner rather than later. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published every Friday, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast services. Thanks for listening.